Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of stalking, murder, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Halloween night, 1979. The last bit of light faded as it neared 7 p.m. But the streets of Gross Point Farms, Michigan, had been alive with families since early evening. As they went door to door, the trick-or-treaters admired the decorations of the homes. The spookier, the better. At one house, a man jumped out and sent little kids screaming. At another, masked dummies guarded the front door. The scares resulted in screams of glee, not horror. They believed they were safe in these homes and on these streets. But that night, 25-year-old Coral Eugene Watts decided to make the neighborhood his hunting ground. Coral drove through the town, scanning the streets of the affluent suburb for an easy target. When he saw 44-year-old Gene Klein walking alone, he pulled over. Opening the car door, he removed a sharpened screwdriver from his pocket. Coral approached the unsuspecting woman from behind, put her in a headlock, and stabbed her repeatedly in the chest. It was over in seconds. Blood dripped from Coral's hands as he hopped back in his car and drove away into the gathering dark. Jean lay slumped over, bloody and motionless. Children and teenagers began to gather around her house. They marveled at what they thought was the coolest Halloween prank they'd seen all night. But after just a few seconds, the reality of the situation sank in, and suddenly, the screams filling the night were ones of terror. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a ParCast original. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're taking a close look at Coral Eugene Watts, also known as the Sunday Morning Slasher. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Serial Killers for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. From 1974 to 1982, Coral Eugene Watts stabbed, strangled, and drowned innumerable young women all over the state of Michigan. Today, we'll trace how his destructive needs evolved from childhood to his first brutal murders. In our next episode, we'll follow Coral's murder spree as it moves across state lines and the final attack that led to his capture. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. There's an area in Texas with a curious legacy. Known as the Texas-Bermuda Triangle, it's the central point between three infamous massacres. In 1966, Charles Whitman killed 14 people in and around a tower at the University of Texas, Austin. Almost 30 years later, the federal government's siege of the Branch Davidians in Waco left over 80 dead. And almost exactly in between these two cities lies the town of Killeen, where George Hennard killed 23 people at a Luby's cafeteria in 1991. And it was in this city that Carl Eugene Watts was born to Richard and Dorothy May in 1953. And perhaps in this triangle of death, the first seeds of darkness were planted in him. The family didn't stay long, however. After a few moves and a divorce, Carl, his sister, and his mother eventually settled in Inkster, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. Dorothy found work as a high school art teacher. Still, the family of three often returned to West Virginia to visit Carl's grandparents. Carl treasured his time in the old coal miner's town. He loved his grandma's house and the drawl of his cousin's accents that would string out his name from Carl to sound like Coral. He liked the pronunciation so much that he had his mother legally change his name to Coral. That's how we'll refer to him for the remainder of the episode. It was in the forest behind the house that young Coral first became obsessed with hunting small creatures, like jackrabbits, with his grandfather. Coral's early inclinations and enjoyment for hunting may have been an early indicator for the violence he would feel driven to when he grew up. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Dr. Eleonora Galoni, an author and developmental psychologist, has carried out research about the link between animal cruelty, antisocial behavior, and aggression. She suggests that acts of interpersonal violence are frequently preceded by or co-occur with acts of cruelty to animals as red flag markers that were previously ignored. But if Coral displayed any violence towards people as a child, his family didn't seem to register it. In an interview with the Houston Chronicle, Coral's grandmother said he was always a good little boy who stayed around her and his mother. Outside of the house, Coral had difficulties in school. Still, he worked tirelessly on his homework and managed to get good grades. But when Coral was in the third grade, he and his sister Sharon both contracted meningitis, a viral or bacterial inflammation of the brain and spinal cord membranes. Sharon was treated at Detroit General Hospital, but Coral was refused admittance for reasons unknown. He developed a high fever and was eventually treated at Herman Kiefer Hospital, where he was also diagnosed with polio. But it was too late for Coral to ever fully recover. Coral sustained significant cognitive damage. His issues with memory and concentration were much worse than they had been, and he seemed unable to focus in class. 
The mental and emotional obstacles were only starting for Coral, though. His mother, Dorothy, eventually married Norman Caesar, a father of six, meaning Coral's family instantly tripled in size. Dorothy soon gave birth to two more children, giving Coral his eighth and ninth siblings. Almost overnight, Coral was lost in the shuffle of his new, massive family. His sister, Sharon, reflected that Coral became an introverted child in the big household. He typically had a quiet temperament, but once angered, he often escalated to an erratic and unstable state. The only outlet Coral had for this anger was sports. At a young age, Coral became heavily involved in baseball, track, football, and boxing with great success. And for a while, that was enough. But the pressure and frustration he experienced were building, and Coral's inability to express himself led to his first violent attack. In 1969, when he was 15 years old, Coral started working a local paper route. One morning, while carrying out his regular deliveries, Coral knocked on the door of a 26-year-old woman named Joan Gave, who he'd seen while making his rounds. When Joan opened the door, Coral punched her in the face. He continued to beat her, but when she screamed, he got scared and ran off. Following the attack, Coral managed to collect himself and finished his paper route. Four days later, police located and arrested Coral for the assault. When the cops asked why he attacked Joan, Coral replied, I just felt like beating someone up. Coral was checked into Lafayette Mental Clinic to be assessed. At this early stage, doctors gauged that Coral had impulsive and passive-aggressive inclinations. They found that he dealt with some confusion when their interviews turned complex or detailed, but they didn't find signs of psychosis. However, Coral confessed he'd been suffering from vivid dreams of attacking and murdering women. But Coral wasn't disturbed by these dreams. On the contrary, he said, I feel better after I have one. During their evaluations, the clinicians at Lafayette noted that Coral felt no remorse for attacking Joan. Just like the violent dreams that plagued him, Coral found only relief indulging in the idea of beating women. The doctors summarized that Coral showed signs of paranoia and homicidal impulses. Due to his poor behavioral controls, he posed a danger to those around him. Regardless of their evaluation, Coral was released from the clinic on his 16th birthday in 1969. Outpatient treatment was recommended, but no mandatory number of sessions were imposed. Following his release, Coral's return visits were sparing. Despite increasingly dark thoughts and behaviors, he visited the clinic less than 10 times over the next five years. And with his issues unchecked, Coral's parents claimed his cruelty was unleashed at home. He enjoyed bullying his sister to the point of crying. Luckily for her, he had multiple ways of indulging his aggressive nature. For the rest of his teenage years, the only way Coral dealt with his frustrations was through his dedication to football and athletics. The roughness of contact sports gave him a socially sanctioned avenue for the emotional release he felt when he beat Joan Gave. Around this time, Coral started fabricating stories for the therapists. In his sessions, Coral claimed that his mother emotionally and physically abused him. He told the doctors that she would manipulate his feelings, beat him, and yell at him. According to him, it wasn't unusual for his mother to hit him across the face. Coral's family have denied these abuse allegations, but whatever the veracity of these claims, they're indicative of the mounting tension inside him. 
Despite his anger with her, Dorothy continued supporting her son through his scholastic challenges. She tutored him to help lift his grades while maintaining his athletic success. With her help, Carl graduated at 19 and received a scholarship and football offer at Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. He was set to play for the Lane Dragons in the fall of 1973 when tragedy struck. Coral suffered a devastating knee injury that ended his football career once and for all. He dropped out of school only three months into his first semester. 20-year-old Coral moved back in with his mother and stepfather in Detroit. He was dejected and demoralized by his failure to last at college. It fueled his ever-present anger. And without sports, he no longer had an outlet for the frustration he felt. During this period, Coral returned to Lafayette Mental Clinic for a checkup of sorts. There, he complained that the same disturbing inclinations and thoughts still tormented him. The clinic's doctors warned his parents about the violent potential of his anger. The report emphasized that Coral's primitive thoughts and fantasies about beating women threatened to break through. Unfortunately, they didn't know just how close to the surface the thoughts and anger were. Up next, Coral goes back to college, where he majors in murder. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After a childhood of pent-up frustrations, introversion, and emerging homicidal impulses, 20-year-old Carl Eugene Watts found himself back home living with his parents. But in July 1974, he found a fresh start at Western Michigan University. Coral enrolled as an engineering student, secured a job at the school cafeteria, and moved into on-campus housing in Kalamazoo. Unfortunately, Coral hadn't grown out of the concentration and memory issues of his childhood, and they made him ill-suited to college. Without academic support from his mother, he lost interest in academics and often skipped classes and assignments. After just a few months, he was acting out once more. In mid-October, campus police caught Carl stealing plywood from a construction site on WMU property. He suffered no consequences for the foiled theft, leaving him free to strike again. Coral took to wandering through buildings, looking for trouble and bothering residents. On the morning of October 25th, Coral prowled around some apartments near campus, knocking door to door and seeing who answered. One of the residents who answered was 23-year-old Lenore Nizaki, a fellow WMU student. She answered with the chain still on the hook, intentionally not opening the door too wide. Coral politely asked if Charles was home. There was no Charles. It was just a ruse Coral thought up to get inside. But Lenore kept the door chained. She told him that no one named Charles lived there and suggested he ask some of her neighbors. Coral left, but returned 10 minutes later and knocked on Lenore's door again, feigning distress. He had to talk to Charles. Even though there was no Charles, she offered some paper and pen so he could leave a note for Charles. 
Just as Coral wanted, Lenore let her guard down and unchained the lock. He seized his chance and burst through the open door. Coral, strong from his years of athletic training, easily pinned Lenore. He put his knee on her chest and his hands around her throat. As she struggled against him, he reached around and fondled her with one hand as he choked her with the other. As Lenore's vision started to go dark around the edges, she let out a blood-curdling scream. Spooked, Coral fled and Lenore blacked out just after seeing his menacing shadow leave. Fired up from his success, Coral started hunting for a new victim. Just days later, witnesses saw Coral trying his Is Charles Home routine at the Stadium Drive Apartments. He tried the ploy for a number of days until he found his chance on October 30th. That day, he knocked on the door of Gloria Steele, a 19-year-old mother and psychology student. According to her family, Gloria focused on little else besides her daughter and her studies. When Carl knocked at the door, Gloria cracked it open. She was immediately overpowered by the athletic 20-year-old. Coral took out a wood carving knife and plunged it into Gloria's chest. He stabbed her 33 times and crushed her windpipe. He later said that with each stab, he felt his rage subside. And when Gloria was dead, he simply got up and left. The murder was brutal and messy. Sergeant James Arthurs of the Detroit Police Department said he stabbed Gloria Steele so hard in the chest with this wood carving tool that it embedded in her spine and had to be chiseled out by the medical examiner. Unfortunately, someone cleaned up and moved Gloria's body upon finding her, leaving police with contaminated and useless evidence. All fingerprints, footprints, Fibers, hair, or skin particles were compromised, essentially eliminating the possibility of a conviction on the case. If not for the evidence snafu, the WMU Police Department believed they may have been able to solve the murder within 72 hours. Still, for reasons we can't uncover, Sergeant Arthur suspected Coral's involvement early on. A search of his garage found wood carving tools that potentially matched the one used to kill Gloria. But with little usable physical evidence at the crime scene, it was all circumstantial. They couldn't be completely certain of Coral's guilt. For his part, Coral was riding high. His house had been searched, and still police hadn't pinned Gloria's murder on him. The rush, not just the murder, but the getting away with it, was transcendent and he was already looking for his next fix. On November 12, 1974, 21-year-old Coral wandered around another apartment building in Kalamazoo. 23-year-old Diane Williams, a resident manager, took note of Coral strolling around her building. Just after noon, Coral knocked on Diane's door and asked the same question, was Charles home? Like Lenore Nizaki, Diane offered paper and pen for Coral to leave a note to Charles. When Coral grabbed for the paper, he forced the door open. He pulled Williams into the living room and threw her to the floor. Coral tried to get on top of her and hold her down, but Williams hit back with all she had. As Coral tried to get a handle on Williams, the telephone in the living room rang. Struggling against Coral, Williams managed to kick her foot up to the table and get the phone off the hook. 
Not even knowing who was on the line, Williams screamed as loud as she could to alert them that she was in trouble. Once again, Coral spooked and ran off. Williams fought off her distress and went to the window to see her fleeing attacker. She watched Coral get into a tan Pontiac Grand Prix and immediately called the police. Now, with a vehicle type and physical description of this repeat offender, the police pulled a list of suspects. The department gathered a lineup of eight men matching Coral's description who drove tan Pontiac Grand Prix. The police suspected that Lenore and Diane's attacker was the same man who murdered Gloria Steele and knew this might be their one chance to get a killer off the streets. Both women identified Coral as their attacker, and he was arrested on November 16, 1974. For the attacks, he was charged with battery and assault. But more importantly, police finally had an excuse to interrogate Coral about Gloria's murder. Coral admitted to loitering at Gloria's apartment building the day before the murder, but denied any involvement. He even encouraged the police to give him a polygraph test, though one was never performed. Even as he awaited trial for the assaults and faced suspicions for Gloria's murder, Coral was unable to control his urges. Not even a week after his arrest, Coral attempted to steal plywood on campus for the second time and was arrested. In December of 1974, Coral was brought in for his pre-sentence interview for the theft charge. In a pre-sentence investigation, a probation officer examines the circumstances of an offender who is deemed guilty. The process is designed to ascertain a truer picture of the criminal and crime before sentencing. During his interview, Coral slipped up and confessed to the attacks not only of Lenore and Diane, but at least 15 additional women in the area. After realizing his mistake, Coral stopped answering questions and demanded a lawyer. But the damage was done, and he knew it. Still, he was determined to avoid jail time for the assaults any way he could. So when his sentence for the theft charge was a choice between 45 days either in jail or at the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital, he took the latter. Now, 21-year-old Coral was, comparatively speaking, living the high life in the hospital. His days consisted of playing sports, shooting pool, and relaxing. It seems like his tenure there was almost like an escape from the bustle of everyday life. He even grew accustomed to the psychological evaluations and procedures. Coral was a straightforward case in the eyes of the doctors at the hospital. Their sessions with him revealed no issues with religion, voices, suspiciousness, or psychosis. However, Dr. James Cotillius diagnosed Coral with antisocial personality disorder. Coral's repeated lies, aggressive assaults, and distinct lack of remorse all qualified him for the diagnosis. That said, it's important to note that not all people with ASPD become violent or hurt others. Throughout his stay at the hospital, Coral refused to take responsibility for his crimes. He blamed his behavior on others, was dominated by impulsivity, and demonstrated a distinct lack of growth or awareness following his arrests and treatments. But he had learned how to use spectacle to get what he wanted from the mental hospitals. When Coral concluded his 45-day sentence, he was released back out into the world, more calculated and confident than ever. Up next, Coral creates one life and takes even more. Now back to the story. 
In early 1975, 21-year-old Coral Eugene Watts finished up his 45-day sentence at the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital. But he still had to stand trial for charges of assault and battery against WMU students Lenore Nizaki and Diane K. Williams. Because of the upcoming trial, Coral went directly from the Kalamazoo Hospital to the Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ann Arbor, Michigan. There, Dr. Alyssa Benedek deemed Coral competent to stand trial, declaring that he suffered no mental illness, though she also noted that he was a continued danger to society. Coral told Dr. Benedek that he found relief in beating up women and that it made him feel good. When she asked if he was distressed by what he'd done, Coral said no. It only bothered him that he was caught. While at the psychiatry center, he sought legal advice. Coral had played the system once with his stay in the Kalamazoo Hospital, and it seemed he was still looking for a way to avoid serving time behind bars. But Coral wouldn't get off that easy for his assault charges. On December 19, 1975, Coral was sentenced to one year in the county jail. But after only seven months, Coral was released. He soon moved back home with his mother and stepfather in Inkster, Michigan. While he was home, Coral had a fling with a childhood friend, Dolores Howard. Dolores became pregnant, and the couple decided to have the child together. For the time being, their relationship was at least stable, if not normal or romantic. Their daughter, Nikisha, was born in early 1979, but they didn't stay a family for long. Coral refused to claim Nikisha as his child and deserted Dolores soon after the birth. In the months leading up to Nikisha's birth, five women in the Detroit area were sexually assaulted. All of the women woke up to a man standing over them and groping them. Coral was never conclusively linked to the assaults, but he closely fit the description provided by the women at the times of their attacks. Around the time this wave of attacks ended, 25-year-old Coral met a young woman, Valeria Goodwill, at a discotheque. They had a brief romance before marrying in August of 1979. Marriage did nothing to settle Coral's violent behavior, and he committed another brutal murder in October of that year. On Halloween night, he drove the streets of Gross Point Farms, searching for his next victim. He spotted a woman, 44-year-old Jean Klein, walking alone. Though the night was bustling with trick-or-treaters, he couldn't resist. He pulled over. He grabbed Jean from behind and held her immobile as he stabbed her in the chest. When at last his rage was satisfied, he dropped Jean's body to the ground, raced back to his car, and drove away. It's likely he went straight home after the murder and cleaned up before his new wife could see the blood on his hands. But no matter how careful he was to keep his wife in the dark, she wasn't completely clueless. After a few months of marriage, Valeria noticed upsetting behavior from Coral. He had terrible, violent nightmares that made him aggressive and sensitive to the touch. These nightmares also induced a state that made him appear asleep, even while he stood up and walked around. With his evident psychiatric issues left untreated, Carl's actions only grew more odd. He would dump the trash on the floor and leave it there for no apparent reason. Then he cut up candles and melted them into the dining room table. 
Coral also became very controlling of Valeria. He said he didn't like her makeup, wigs, and other beauty products, and insisted she stop using them. He even flushed one of her wigs down the toilet in a fit of rage. The worst part for Valeria was that Coral would leave the house for hours at a time with no explanation. Often, after being intimate with Valeria, Coral would rush out, only to come back later with a messed appearance and sometimes torn clothing. And Valeria had no idea where her husband was going, until a run-in with the police soon offered an explanation. On October 17, 1979, Coral wandered around the outside of a woman's home in a Detroit suburb, watching her from the windows. A neighbor noticed Coral and called the police, but when they arrived to investigate, he wasn't willing to go easily. Coral led the cops on a car chase through the neighborhood, but was eventually caught and arrested for disorderly prowling. He was handed several fines and tickets, but no charges were leveled. The incident suggests what Coral was up to during his other late-night outings and why he returned to Valeria disheveled. And she wasn't the only one clued in. Now the Detroit police had Coral on their radar. Once the police realized that Coral matched the description of the offender from the five sexual assaults the year before, they knew they should keep tabs on him. But his latest run-in with the police didn't dissuade Coral from his nighttime prowling. Whatever he'd been doing on those evenings away, it wasn't enough to satisfy him. Even the pressure of the authorities couldn't keep him from striking again soon. On December 1st, 1979, Joseph Foy looked through the window of his apartment out onto the street. In the harsh alley lights, he could make out the figures of a man and a woman. The woman was pressed up against the wall, held there by the man. He could see the man stabbing the woman while she remained pinned. Joseph got a good look at the attacker as he left the woman slumped in front of the building and got into his tan Pontiac. Later, he would recall the man's eyes were cold and callous. Joseph called the police, who arrived to find 36-year-old Helen Dutcher dead. She'd been stabbed 12 times. Joseph sat with a sketch artist. The drawing, based on his description, looked a lot like Coral Eugene Watts. Unfortunately, the investigation stalled out after that. Joseph checked in with the police, but was told that nothing useful had been recovered at the scene and that no suspects had been identified. Coral had gotten away with murder once again. Still, despite this, it seems Coral still held some anxiety about being caught, so he varied his M.O. Instead of prowling suburban neighborhoods, he took to nighttime drives, roaming the Michigan freeways, and he used these drives to seek out new victims. In the early morning hours of April 20th, 1980, 17-year-old Shirley Small was walking home alone. She and her boyfriend had been enjoying a night at the skating rink a few miles from her home when they got into a fight. Frustrated, Shirley broke away from the group of friends early. It was around 3.45 a.m. when Shirley's boyfriend got in his car to look for her. He caught up to her on the deserted Packard Road and offered to drive her the rest of the way home. Shirley refused, and her boyfriend drove off in frustration, leaving her to make the remainder of the journey alone in the dark. We can't be sure exactly what transpired next, but based on what we know about Coral, we can take a guess. Roving through the streets, Coral spotted Shirley walking alone. Her neighbors reported seeing her in the neighborhood at 4.30 a.m. 
so it's likely he followed and waited until she almost made it home before he struck. Her body was found outside at 6.45 a.m. the next morning. She was just 70 feet away from her family's townhouse when she died of two stab wounds to the heart. Shirley's face had shallow cuts made with a curious tool shaped like a hockey stick. The coroner determined a scalpel-like tool was used. Like Coral's other victims, Shirley wasn't sexually assaulted or robbed. It was another murder just for the sheer hell of it. And while authorities began their investigation, Coral reveled in the possibilities his latest attack opened up. A new city, a new way of finding victims, a new spree was about to begin. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back on Thursday with part two of Coral Eugene Watts' story. We'll explore how Coral became known as the Sunday Morning Slasher. For more information on Coral Eugene Watts, amongst the many sources we used, we found Evil Eyes by Corey Mitchell, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Serial Killers and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Serial Killers, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Serial Killers on Spotify, just open the app and type Serial Killers in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Isabella Menachello, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 